today on CityCast Denver. Memorial Day weekend, the beginning of summer, and for many, the time to hit the open road in search of adventure. But what are you hitting the road with? Two wheels, four, your feet, an electric bike or car, maybe the bus? Yesterday, we were invited to put on a live podcast at the Transportation Solutions Foundation's annual Road Ahead Conference, which focused on the intersection of equity, climate, and transportation. It was a room full of politicians and policy wonks, but we kept it light, and I think everyone had a good time. So today, I'm happy to share a recording of that event. Oh, and we're taking a long weekend for Memorial Day, so we won't be back in your podcast feed until Tuesday morning. Have a great weekend. Today is Friday, May 27th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. I was absolutely astonished that Bree understood the lingo and all things about our industry, and lo and behold. You planners love jargon, I know that. So <laughs> I took a short detour into planning for four years, so That's I'm well-versed in your, your words. She knows our stuff. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, again, my name is Bree Davies, and I host a daily podcast about Denver called CityCast Denver. We cover everything from transit issues and legislation around housing to what and where you would find the best breakfast burrito in Denver. So we really try to touch all topics that uh, impact Denverites. Um, we were invited here by Transportation Solutions to have a conversation about our current state of transit. So um, I, I really, I, I want to start with kind of just getting a feel for the room. Can everybody who biked here raise your hand? Okay, a couple of you. All right, thank you. <laughs> Um, anyone who took the bus, please raise your hand. All right. And now, if you drove here, raise your hand. I was going to say, <laughs> Councilwoman Black has a good point. If you carpooled here, would you raise your hand? Okay, impressive, impressive. Still, it is overwhelmingly dominated by people like me, the single occupant car driver, for sure. So, um, I'm gonna introduce our panel and, and then I'm gonna ask you each how you got here. So Marcus Robinson is co-founder and executive director of Ride for Racial Justice, an organization he co-founded after the murder of George Floyd. The 501c3 is dedicated to providing access and opportunity to BIPOC cyclists that may not have had an opportunity to participate in this sport. Marcus is also a proud East High School alum. What's up? I'm a GW DPS represent. Um, and I, East High School alum, as well as a self-proclaimed barbecue pit master. He's a lifelong cyclist that grew up in Park Hill, and Marcus continues to practice the values taught to him by his parents and neighbors. Marcus, can I ask how you got here today and how you feel about that? Thank you, Bree. And how I got here, I drove. Uh, I had, what? Yes, I had no choice. You're my cyclist. I, I know I'm the cyclist, but um, my other job, which I had to take leave from, this morning to come down here to be with you all. I work for the airport. Therefore, um, I had to drive. That's a lot of driving. It's a lot of driving. Also riding a bike in a suit, not riding the best. Riding a bike in a suit is not the best, no. <laughs> so uh, next we have Grace Rink. She's Denver's chief climate officer. And in that role, she directs the investments of the $40 million annual climate protection fund, which has done some really cool work in the transportation space this past year. Grace commutes by electric vehicle, train, and e-bike, and she always wears a helmet. 
Grace, how did you get here today? Uh, good morning, Bree. Good morning. I have an electric vehicle and I drove that today. So I did drive a car. But, it but it's an, an EV. EV. Yeah. So I, I, and how do I feel about that? There are times when I do, I do feel bad about driving because although I may, in my electric vehicle, I may not be contributing to the air pollution issues or air quality issues, I'm still contributing to the demand for parking and to congestion. Fair. Fair points. Next, we have Skylar McKinley. He's the Regional Director of Public Affairs for AAA. He's a fourth-generation Coloradan, and he owns and operates the historic Oak Creek Tavern in the Yampa Valley and serves as the treasurer of the Denver Press Club and is a regular contributor to Denver 7, Fox 31, and Denver Westward. Hey, Skylar, how did you get here today, and how do you feel about it? You guys are going to love this. I'm the AAA spokesman. I walked. I walk everywhere, 20,000 steps a day. I walk more than I drive. This is why we live in a city, folks, right? I live in Denver, I live two blocks from here, and I walk, and that's such a privilege to be able to do. <laughs> you, I was telling Skylar earlier, I'm like, you screwed up my whole presentation here, which was gonna be like, you and me are the single occupant car drivers, let's throw us under the bus. But that's gonna be, I, I think that's gonna be me, Marcus, and Grace are the ones that drove here today. Um, so, Skylar, I'd really love to pick on you first, honestly, and because you represent people like me, the car drivers. How do you see Denver's transit problem? So I think that when we think about Denver and transportation, we have to think in the context of the American West, because that's what we are, right? We're the queen city of the plains. The American West was, of course, sort of founded by cowboys and the railroads, but then the modern American West has been characterized by the automobile. As far as Rocky Mountain West cities go, we actually have fairly good transit, we have fairly walkable cities, but car ownership is a fact of life. It is in our DNA. Uh, there's sprawl, of course, which this group talks about a lot, but there's also sort of uh, more of a psychological impact of the automobile. You live in the West because you love freedom, and the, the automobile, for better or for worse, has been an avatar of freedom for a generation, right? So I am really proud that I have transportation choices. I'm really proud that as far as Rocky Mountain cities go, Denver has a lot of them, but culturally, uh, we will never win a war on cars in the American West. And so thinking in that context, I think, tends to be a little counterproductive uh, when really we should be talking about freedom, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's what I talk about a lot in my work, is, is the car has been this avatar of freedom, but transportation choice is also freeing. How do we shift that mindset in, in, among people who have moved to a place specifically because they like to get up and go? Mm, I might push back on you and say it's a luxury of choice sometimes, not always a freedom of choice. But I do want to talk about the car culture thing in a minute. Um, but first, I would love to hear from you, Marcus. What do you think about that car culture idea, or what do you think the transit issue here is in Denver? Well, as, a, as a BIPOC person living here in Denver, off and on since after getting out of college, I've noticed that... Uh, when I grew up in the Park Hill area, you know, Park Hill and City Park was predominantly people of color. Over the past probably 25 years, it's definitely changed. Uh, most of the people of color have actually migrated out of the city, out to the suburbs, so on and so forth. When I was younger, it was out to Montbello. As I got older, it was out to Green Valley Ranch, Highlands Ranch, so on and so forth. And so what I'm noticing now is that Denver is just pretty much turned into a, a white community, the city and county, right, of Denver itself has turned into a white community, and all the people of color are out in the suburbs, per se. And so when I look at transportation options, I'm, I'm looking at them from the lens of what are those communities out in the suburbs offering, right? So 
one of the uh, the points that w the the speaker was making this morning was talking about trying to find transportation options for all these new types of businesses that are operating outside of of the community, and where we live, ironically now, is is uh, out in Green Valley Ranch, and there is a huge amount of, of businesses that are starting to develop, the Amazons, the FedExes, and all of that are surrounding that whole corridor. The problem is there is no transit, mm. right? So the transit is actually there with the A-line, right? And we'll get off at 61st and, and Penny and so on and so forth, but there is no connectivity out to those places which, you know, five or 10 miles away from where the main line is. And then the the bus routes that are there, they're so few and infrequent that it makes it difficult for that community to actually have access to that transit option. So I think that's where option becomes kind of a subjective term, honestly. Is, is it truly an option? And you're talking about what Skyler was talking about, which is this growth of a city and this great, you know, this dream of the West. We're still growing. I think Green Valley Ranch is a great example of home ownership and these things that um, are opportunities, but they come at a cost. And so I appreciate that perspective. Grace, you represent the city of Denver here. What is What, is, what do you think is Denver's transit problem? Uh, well, I think it's multifaceted and maybe I'll, I'll give some examples. And I agree that um, we should be looking at transportation as a whole as the concept of freedom, right? And we sh everybody should be free to get where they need to go safely and conveniently. And so I'll tell you, when I am sitting in traffic, I do not feel free. I'm in, I'm, a, I'm in my car. Even if I'm carpooling, I still don't feel free. At the same time, when I commute downtown um, for work, I take my uh, car or bike to the train. I take the train downtown. Well, right now, there are significant labor shortages that are impacting those schedules. Just as you said, they were already infrequent. Buses were already infrequent, and now they're even more infrequent. And so when I'm sitting there, I get there in time for the train that, you know, is at the 719. And when I get there, and it's on a 19-minute delay because they're not able, they don't have the staff required, um, that's also not freeing. And so I think that it's a multi-layered problem in Denver. Um, it's, it, is, it is a matter of both of safety and convenience at a minimum. Marcus, I want to ask you, because uh, both Skylar and Grace have talked about this idea of freedom, you're a resident cyclist on this panel. And to me, honestly, when I think of trans transportation and transit as a freedom, I think about biking because it's how I connect with my neighborhood and I have total autonomy to go and do as I please. What do you think about this idea of freedom and transit? It's, it's ironic. Um, I had to pause when I was listening to our speaker because a lot of the same things that he was talking about is the things that actually are affecting all of us, you know, in the BIPOC community here in Denver. And one of our mottos uh, with our organization, uh, Ride for Racial Justice, is bikes equals freedom. Mm -hmm. That's on the back of all of our jerseys and everything else. And that's what we talk about all the time because bikes are free. Bikes are freeing for children. Bikes are freeing for adults. Bikes take you back to childhood. It makes you smile. It's the easiest thing that you can possibly do on two wheels. But with that comes all of the other negative things of policing and things of that nature and traffic and, and so forth. So for me and for our organization, um, I just have to say, there's just so much there. I know. I know. We're barely touching the surface. Barely touching the surface. Sure. And, and it's difficult. It's a conversation that we must continue to have. 
Absolutely. I love that thought, though, because I'm thinking about as a kid, the way that I could be away from my parents and be away in the world is to be on my bicycle. I never thought about that until you just said that. Grace, sorry. Yeah, I'm going to say, something? if I may add, I will never forget when I was teaching um, my oldest child how to ride a bike. And of course, he was very frustrated and he wanted to throw the bike down and quit. And I remember getting right down in his face and looking at him and saying, this is freedom. This is freedom. You are going to love this. The second you are able to take off on your own, you will be able to go anywhere. And he's scowled and got mad and he got on his bike and I mean we haven't seen him since right <laughs> so he and our kids were free range on their bikes by age seven they were going to the park by themselves they were crossing streets with signals and stop signs they learned how to make eye contact with drivers before they cross and um and you know here in Denver it continues they are they are truly free on their bikes and they love that and I think we need to continue doing that to, to make sure that we're raising generations of people who understand that the streets are for everyone and so yeah. when they become, if they become drivers, uh, they will, they will learn to recognize the safety that they need to practice um, in addition, you know, in order to keep the other bikers safe and pedestrians, of course. I want to touch on that, Skylar, because um, prior to this conversation, you and I talked and something that you mentioned is that there's this tension, right, between cyclists and drivers. What is that in, the, what do you think that is for drivers? What's that tension like? Yeah, so, uh, you know, Cars are sort of inherently anti-communitarian, right? And this is, the, this is the beauty of the automobiles. I can get behind this increasingly large, the wheel of this increasingly large car or truck, and I can go anywhere, and I don't really have to concern myself with others. I can turn my own climate control on, I can turn the radio on. It's a complete me, me, me experience. The problem with transportation is it is naturally all of us, right? So we have the dominant mode, which, is in, which encourages predominantly thinking about yourself, operating on transportation infrastructure that ostensibly should be accountable for everybody and to everybody. But that tension is inherent, not necessarily because drivers are bad or drivers are evil, not because bicyclists are so selfish for wanting a lane that might slow down traffic. It's because the automobile itself was never designed with a community in mind, right? Mm -hmm. It was always designed for, to make the driver feel selfish. We see this in the data too, right? Cars are getting super safe. Cars are safer than they've ever been, and that'll be true next year and the year after that, if you're the driver, if you're the passenger, right? And yet, if you're not the passenger or driver, if you're a pedestrian, a bicyclist, cars are getting more and more dangerous. We're seeing rising fatality counts. That is not because drivers are bad or bicyclists are bad. It's because the technology that we invested in a generation ago turned out to be bad for 2022. Mm, interesting. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade, hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. Marcus, you spoke on behalf of cyclists uh, at a recent 
for a recent piece of legislation that passed the Idaho Stop. Can you explain a little bit of what what that legislation is and then why it was important to cyclists like you? Actually, I'm, I was really honored to be asked to, to speak um, to both the House and the Senate regarding the Idaho Safety Stop, which is now the, the Colorado Safe, Safety Stop Law that was passed by passed and signed by Governor Polis. And without getting into the real specifics about it, so I'm just gonna break it down to make it really easy, is that cyclists are able to, if you approach a, a stop sign, you can ap approach it safely, right? Uh, to not just run the stop sign, but use your brain and treat it more or less like a yield sign, making sure that you are okay to go through that intersection. When it comes to a, a traffic light that's, that's got a light of controlled access, then you must be extremely aware of where you are, meaning that you're just not gonna run through a stoplight. You're going to take a pause, you're gonna think about it, you're gonna find out whether or not it is safe to cross that intersection. And if you do find that it's safe, then you can cross it you know, at your leisure without being uh, impeded or, or getting a traffic ticket. So for me, as a proud member of AARP, the one thing about um, the safety stop is that as a child, I was stopped numerous times because of the color of my skin and then being accused of stealing the bicycle that my parents had bought me. Mm. By people asking, say, you ran the stop sign. Well, no, I didn't. I was a kid. Didn't run a stop sign, but yet I was contacted by police. That happened from grade school all the way up through, through college where I was stopped to the point where I was accused of stealing bicycles so on and so forth. And then I got to thinking about this, and then as things started moving on to where we are now in 2022, I found out that I was actually being profiled. There was parts of what was happening to me, and I didn't know it, is that police were stopping me in order to find out who I was, to find out whether or not I was a bad person, because I'm being stopped, and then they can run me and find out all this stuff. Well, of course, I was a good kid, so they didn't find anything. Here we are in 2022, and I'm finding out, yes, that's what's going on. Police are stopping children, grandmas, aunts, and uncles for things that they shouldn't be stopping them for, for running a stop sign in your community, you know, a block away from your home. Or if, you're, if that child is going to the grocery store, like you were saying, you know, the little simple things, going to the grocery store to get groceries, and you got a bag full of groceries, and all of a sudden you're being stopped by a cop saying, okay, who are you and what are you doing? No. So to be able to say that we have passed that and this, we will no longer be criminalized, we won't be checked by the police department, and that's just not me, that's everybody in this room. We all have the same rights. And so I'm happy. Yeah. And it's made an impact, and it made an impact because I'm sitting here in front of you guys, so <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Thank you for that work. Um, Grace, something that is a contentious issue here for cyclists as well as drivers in Denver is the, the bike lane situation. What is Denver's approach to making cycling more safe? Or I, I guess I, I just want to know from a city perspective how, how you all see the function of bicycles in this coexistence of the car culture. Well, we absolutely do want um, cycling to be safe for everybody uh, at all ability levels. Um, we are, the city is first off building out 
mi miles upon miles of bike lane. And so um, I think we heard this morning that we're already at 125 miles of bike lane. And what we're moving to now, in addition to, in addition to building out more bike lanes, what we're really looking at now are protected bike lanes. And I think there was a very interesting new approach that just, just was installed in the last couple, in the last maybe two months, and it's on Central Park. And um, the way it used to work was the typical road design, right? You have, the, you have the tree lawn, and then you have parking, and then you have a bike lane, and then you have the driving lane. And so on this stretch of Central Park, that was flipped simply by striping. It's really not that difficult. So now you have tree lawn, and you have the bike lane, then you have a lane of parking, and then you have the cars driving. And I am, I'm really interested to hear how the people who traverse that, that street on a regular basis, how they're, how they're feeling about that. Are they, are they finding that they are feeling more comfortable? And what, what of course, we really want to see then are the numbers. Are the numbers of people biking there increasing? Um, because when people feel more comfortable, they feel more safe, they're more likely to use the bike infrastructure that we have. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the number one thing is, do you feel safe? Marcus, as someone that utilizes these lanes, I'm guessing, how do you feel about them? I'm really glad about what the mayor talked about with the increase of bike lanes. What I'm finding is I traverse the city, whether I'm training with the, with the team or, or I'm just out by myself, it's what type of bike lane do we have, right? Where we have out in, in Green Valley Ranch along the major throughway there, which is Green Valley Ranch Boulevard, there's actually a protected lane that actually has some ballards in it, which is great. I'm loving that, right? That I feel really safe. Except when I'm going down that bike lane and I approach a, an intersection, not a, a controlled intersection, but we're coming out of a neighborhood and they've got the green lines there, that's become a challenge because most of the folks will pull up beyond the green and so they're actually coming into my protected space. And so as I'm noticing that, I'm saying, okay, we need to have a, this is a teachable moment. I was going to say, this is an educational yes, component, yes. right? For me as a driver, sometimes I don't know what to do in that space. And I would say as, so obviously we have transportation advocates here in the room today. And a lot of these organizations, that's a lot, that's so much of what they do is educating the public. But as a representative of the city, we know that that's on us as well. And so I'm at least pleased to report that there's a group of us from different agencies that actually just got together in the last week to talk about how are we collectively going to use our communication outlets to, to talk with the public about um, road safety in all of its forms, not just for cyclists, but for, for driver safety, for pedestrian safety, for um, people with mobility issues safety, as well as for cyclist safety. So we are working on it, and hopefully you'll be seeing more of that on social media and ads and um, hopefully maybe some earned media too. Because I would say that um, aggressive drivers are a thing for sure. I've been charged at by a car while I was walking. It was a very scary situation. But on the whole, I don't think that that's the majority of folks. I think it's folks in their cars are just kind of not sure what to do. Maybe we aren't paying attention, to be fair, but a lot of times we just don't know what those markings mean because I'll tell you, there's like 10 different kinds of bike lanes I've seen and I'm not quite sure what to do with all of them. So I think that education component is important. Um, but bicycles are lovely. We have to acknowledge we live in a car culture. Um, Skylar, Colorado, this is, our, this is one of the main components of our culture. I know when we talked before, you talked about folks going to the mountains, right? Like 
we go there by car. Um, do you think that this is just part of who we are? What is car culture's role in our culture as a, as a state? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's sort of the frustration when we're talking about transportation policy in a place like Denver versus, you know, we hear about all these great things that are happening in Times Square in New York City or that's going on in Paris. It's, it's not going to be workable here because the car is going to be a given. Folks move to Colorado, they stay in Denver, they stay in Colorado because they, they want to see the, the vast wonders of nature here, right? Very few people move to Denver because Denver is a world-class city on its own. So as a function of that, some, the automobile is likely going to be a fact of life because it is the most effective, efficient way to get to the high country. What we have to sort of then question is whether ownership is, is the model that's going to prevail. If we understand that there's all these negative externalities of using cars, which I think this group agrees on, that also goes for electric vehicles, which have slightly fewer negative externalities but certainly still do. But also know that being human is to live and to enjoy yourself and to build a beautiful life, and you can do that here in Colorado through the great outdoors. What's the, what's the model that accounts for uh, reducing the negative externalities of cars and also knowing that everybody's going to need to use a car pretty regularly in their life here? I don't know what that ownership model looks like. You have some of the major manufacturers, Volvo especially, who are looking sort of at mobility as a service. Um, that certainly solves a lot of our zoning issues. Uh, it solves some of our congestion issues. It might reduce some of our pollution issues. Uh, but again, and, and you know, the very popular podcast, which I'm sure many folks listen to with the war on cars, that, that is really a great thing for the conversation in New York. But if you wage a war on cars in Colorado, you will lose 10 times out of 10 because people <laughs> love what their automobile gives to them, which is not any great measure of anything other than being able to see this wonderful place that we all have chosen to live in. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, Grace, go ahead. If you don't mind my adding, I, I think that the, the ownership model you talk about is very interesting. I would also like to think that as, as, we, as we as drivers become more disgruntled with our driving experience, I think, sucks. We, I think we take a look at where are the places I drive in my life and is there some other way I can get there? Mm. And I'll make a plug for e-bikes in this part of the conversation because um, the, what we are finding is that, or I think what transportation data has shown us is that so many, so many of our travels are actually just within five miles of home. And that is a, those are trips that are easily replaceable by an e-bike. And, um, and again, if you pair the e-bike um, opportunity with, uh, you know, with safe streets and comfort biking, then you can replace a lot of those trips. So I would, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that generally households in Denver and in, in our region have 2.2 cars or more, right? That's the average. Now, is it possible that perhaps there will be time when a family can actually get by with one vehicle that can get them to the mountains and then transportation, mass transit and e-bikes or other forms of uh, modes of transportation in order to have all of their needs met? Mm. I love this point. I think that car sharing is not a new concept. It's just something we aren't used to right now, I think. I don't know. Marcus, what do you think? You know, the way I look at it, and I love my city. I, I, I truly do. And what I haven't loved lately is everyone moving here. And, and I say that because they're coming from a very high density area, you know, they're coming from New York, they're coming from LA, Texas, so on and so forth, and they're bringing their two, three, four cars and an <laughs> RV with them because they want to come to Colorado and experience everything that we love here. But with that, they bring the arrogance and the attitude with that when they're coming into our city. And so they don't know how we operate here in Denver. And so 
you know, while I would love to see more e-bikes and all this other stuff, I think it's great for us residents of, of Colorado because we know how to, to operate. I think the challenge is, is for everybody that's coming into our city, not knowing how we, we do things here in Colorado or how to work safely and quietly and, and use all of the EV type of, of, uh, so of it's options. A, it's an education point. I think it is. the thing that I think you're touching on is that every city has different rules for roads, you know? You don't realize that until you go somewhere else and then you're like, oh, this is why people don't use the turn lane in Denver because they don't know that it exists or something. So I, fair, I mean, it's part of who we are. We're a place that people want to be. How do we make sure everybody's on the same page? That's a tough, that's a tough question. Um, Marcus, you've touched on this a couple times, but you created this organization for biking and racial justice in response to the murder of George Floyd in 2020. And when I think about equity in transit, I, I think it's almost a buzzword sometimes. But Marcus, I wonder, do you think Denver has a problem when it comes to transit and equity? Oh. The, the room is laughing for the people listening to this podcast. So I think that it's clear that this is an issue. Uh, but I'd love to hear from you as a cyclist and a person of color, how you feel the city as a whole handles this equity. This is not something we can talk about in, in this one hour. I think this is a, a conversation that is overdue. Absolutely. I think we need to kind of define what we want to solve because it's just a, it's a bigger thing, right? It's just not one dynamic here. And as, as I touched on earlier, I think we as a city, we've, you know, people of color have migrated out of the city. And so everything is out in the outer communities. And so when you start looking at that transit, then you're starting to see people that are on transit, RTD and all these other communities. They say, oh man, there's a lot of Latinos on that bus, a lot of black folks on that bus or, or whomever on that bus coming into the city. Mm. And then you get there, well, who are those people? Where are those people coming from? And it's like, no, they are not those people. Those are, we are citizens here. Yeah. It's just that we're, we've chosen to live in a different area now, and we need access to the same options that we had when we were here. The problem is, is that most of these communities just aren't built out to have that type of access right now. And then when we do get that access, then ridership will dictate whether or not that's a profitable run or not, right? Right. right. And so you may put that, that RTD on this, going to this one community, but if there's no ridership, they said, well, we gave you what you asked for, okay? But now no one's on it, therefore we're going to take it away. So it's, it's such a, a frustrating It's a slippery slope, but then we have to go back to the education part, right? If we start getting our community leaders involved, you know, in those decisions where we're going to start putting increasing new lines in, in the ridership, then I think we'll be more successful. If we're going to, if RTD or whatever transit say we're just going to put a line there where they've not done the research or had the impact from the community, whether or not it would be used, then it's not going to work. And so we truly need to have communities involved in the conversation, just like we're here talking about today. If we're not here talking about it, then you're not going to know about it, and the people that are making decisions can't make that decision in a vacuum. We have got to talk to the communities about these types of services and see what they think, yeah. because they're the ones. Absolutely, the ones that would be utilizing it. 
for sure. And oftentimes that change happens without their conversation, without their voice at the table. Exactly. For sure. So this is about transit solutions. We are in a room talking about transit solutions. I would love to hear from each of you what would be something we could change as a city today if we could do anything to make transit transit opportunities wider and more accessible to more people outside of the car. <laughs> I mean, is it e-bikes? Is it, is it, you know what I mean? What, what is it? You know, I'm not a smart person, but there's a lot of you in this room. <laughs> Here, here's what I know about just the way our society is structured. I know that you can get a Super Bowl ad for a Dodge Ram for $20 million. That's a great truck, by the way. Ram 1500, great truck. <laughs> Dumb for Denver, but a great truck, right? So that's, that's what we're up against, right? There's, there's billions of dollars being spent advertising the car as cool. When we talk about transit and multimodal things, we talk about justice. It is the just choice. It is the sensible choice. It is the equitable choice. These are all sort of heady terms. The conversation needs to shift probably through marketing dollars to why the bus is cool, why it's so cool to walk, why e-bikes are so cool. This is how we sell Pepsi-Cola. This is how we sell everything in this country. And we've not really had advocates apply that to the conversations that we have constantly. So if there was one thing I would change, it's like, look, I think Deborah Johnson's here. It's like, staff up your marketing department with, with top talent. Uh, start there. We know how to change human behavior. It's called marketing. That sucks. Capitalism is questionable. But that's, that's <laughs> what we live in, right? Okay, I love that solution. Make it cool. I, yeah, I mean, I'll, and I'll echo that too, just because I, I do think that communi communicating about everything that we're doing, and of course I come at it from the climate change or climate action perspective, we need to get a lot more people on board with, what, with the work we're trying to do. And I will, I will take them from whatever angle is working for them, and that's what marketing does. Now, okay, so back to your question, as representative of the city, um, I'll go ahead and say that we know that we have challenges in our zoning code um, mm. that we are working to address, which will, um, th this is addressing, you know, long-term land use decisions in the city that can make um, that can make transportation easier and I would say the goal that I would go for is trying to bring uh, or close the gap reduce the distance between where we live where we work and all the other things we need to do in life right like I don't a lot of people don't want to have to go in their car to go to the grocery store if you can do a little run that's you know to a small shop that's near you and you can get your basics like your bread and your milk and then save the grocery trip for once a week um, that's great and you don't I mean, we shouldn't have to do we shouldn't have to drive to every little service that we need and so I think that to a certain extent we're gonna have to do that through the zoning code but the change the zoning code is hard um, it's not that it's physically hard, right? There's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of culture change involved, and it takes time. But we're committed to working on it. Well, and I think the zoning touches on something that Marcus has echoed here over and over again, which is the displacement of communities, particularly communities of color, being pushed farther and farther out of the city, farther away from those um, resources. So we either need to create resources within those communities directly or provide opportunities for folks to come back to the city, and that would require zoning changes in density and things that would allow folks to live near the things that they like or the jobs they do or, you know, the, their, their old neighborhood, for instance. You know, um, being a cyclist and, and I see an e-bike back there on the back row there, the, the one thing about this is that in, in my community, in the BIPOC community, 
one of the things that we're fighting for is when you look at cycling as an industry and as a mode of transportation, bicycles cost a lot of money. Mm. Um, I mean, they cost a lot of money. Families just can't afford bicycles. Um, when I was a child, my parents bought my bike for like 10 bucks. Okay, it was used, it was a paper bike, okay, there it is. So, fast forward to 2022, yes, I have raced in some pretty prestigious races, and I have an expensive bicycles, right? But if we want to affect change, then we need to make that mode of transportation cheap, period. Yeah. A, a elementary school does not, child does not need to a $500 bicycle, period. It doesn't work. Um, a high school kid doesn't need a $15,000 bicycle. It doesn't work. It's not financially feasible for parents. So until we can get bike manufacturers or, or maybe even get rid of all the bikes that are made in Asia and have them made here in the U.S. and make them affordable, then we can start putting bikes in the hands of kids in elementary schools and they're riding back and forth on their bikes there. They can start getting the cargo bikes. They can do all this stuff and they can be an effective force of change at the end of the day. But that would be my ideal transportation solution. Make bikes cheaper, period. Sure. And e-bikes right now, even though I think there's a rebate out there right now, um, a lot of people don't know about it. I found out about the other day and I said, whoa, I need to get an e-bike. My wife's saying, like, you need another bike. But um, <laughs> Can't that, no, that no being thing. said, the, the price of e-bikes have got to come down. They've got to come down where they're affordable. Maybe we make a way for, for a buyback program or, or grants or something like that to be able to put these bikes in the hands of the communities that need them, and then we can reduce the carbon footprint, so on and so forth. But we, those are things, these are challenges, sure. right? Everybody's got to make money. The pandemic killed everything. Uh, we're still getting bike parts that were ordered three years ago yeah. post-pandemic. So it's tough. But to get a, a manufacturer to think about reducing the cost of a bicycle, you don't need carbon. You just need some steel and a couple wheels <laughs> and call it good. And you've got fun and bikes equals freedom. And just to seize on that, you hear a lot from uh, sort of the folks who sell cars and say the car is the most equitable transportation tool. It's how folks get to their jobs. Only rich white people can afford bicycles. And I, I, you, I hear this in these conversations a ton. But we know, Triple A, we researched the hell out of this. Annual cost of car ownership is about $8,000, right? And that's for just a standard automobile. That is not the $70,000 Dodge Ram I was talking about earlier. So, and, and, and we also know this as a society, which is why, for example, we have just insane subsidies for electric vehicles, right? It is really, really cheap relative to the MSRP to buy an electric vehicle. And there's a disconnect because there's no lobbyists for e-bikes in Washington versus there are a ton of lobbyists for Ford and Nissan and Tesla in Washington to ensure that these federal dollars flow, you know, to local programs and to state programs and the like. That's the shift. It's like, well, we already have subsidies for cars and they've worked really well and they've encouraged electrification. The e-bike should be thought of just in car terms. There should stop being this dichotomy of car versus bike. It's like the e-bike is a vehicle, right? More yeah. than a bike is a vehicle. The e-bike is a vehicle. It's an electric vehicle. Let's apply that same thinking. Well, and I want to give the city credit for doing the e-bike rebate program, and it was so popular within, like, the first week, Grace? That's right. So the, um, the e-bike rebate program is uh, one of the rebates we're offering under our climate action rebates, which is funded by your climate protection fund, which um, the voters approved back in 2020. And we're very excited about it. It's our first direct-to-consumer uh, rebate program. And yes, it launched on Earth Day. 
And within about a week and a half, we had over 3,000 applications. And so, and so just so everybody knows, hopefully you'll be able to broadcast this part. Although it is closed to applications right now, the people who receive the rebate vouchers have 60 days to use them. And we know from other um, programs in other cities, not everybody who gets a voucher will actually buy a, an e-bike. And so that money will come back into circulation. And so we expect by you know mid-July, late July, we should be able to open the program again for more applications. So, there, so stay tuned. Um, but uh, I think what's been so exciting about this, not just for us as a city and, and to see a, a program be successful, but for the, for the bike shops here in town and then for the, for the manufacturers that they, work with, that they work with, this shows that there's clear demand. There's a clear demand in the market for these products. And um, so the, hopefully that will lead to more supply, which will hopefully then start to drive down the price. Um, obviously, this is, these are newer technologies, and we're, we're only one, one market uh, across the country, but that's what we hope for. Absolutely, these, uh, this type of equipment is expensive. Um, our rebates uh, are pretty high for uh, income-qualified individuals. And in fact, for an e-cargo bike, for an income-qualified individual, they could receive $1,700 as, a, as um, a voucher. So we're really, and we've seen uh, over 40% of the applicants have been income-qualified individuals. Outstanding. Outstanding. I love that cargo bike, too, idea, too, because you can go to the grocery store. You can, you can take your kids to school. I mean, you could do all sorts of things. Well, we could talk all day about transit, but I really appreciate all three of you joining me today, Skylar, Grace, and Marcus. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Bree. Yes, thank you for having us. Thanks so much. And thank you all. Thanks for inviting us, and thanks for being here. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. Our producers this week were Paul Caroli and Lizzie Goldsmith. Peyton Garcia writes our morning newsletter. Our music is by Los Mocochetes with additional mixing by Tyler Lindgren. If you haven't already, subscribe and rate five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at CityCast Denver and tell a friend about us next time you see him. You can sign up for our daily newsletter and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. See you later.